book of 2 Corinthians, and we're in a short series that we've entitled Humble Brag. Uh, and the reason we've taken that title is because here, Paul, in defending his own ministry to a church he has planted against these interlopers who have snuck in and tried to defame and dislodge Paul's relationship so that they can insert themselves into a place of influence and power in the Corinthian church, he's finally gotten to a point where he says, okay, you're impressed with these men because of their resume, (coughs) because of their boasting. He says, if you're going to make me do it, I think it's foolish, but I can boast as well. But as he does so, he breaks the paradigm of how we usually think about boasting. The things that he boasts in um, are um, are not the things that these interlopers have pointed to. He turns the whole thing on his head, and as he does so, we, we discover that he doesn't so much boast in the things that he's done, but boasts in God himself. So, this morning we're going to look at a section where he boasts in his suffering. And I think especially if you've grown up in the church, especially if you're familiar with this passage or the life of Paul in general, or maybe you've read through the book of Acts, If you've heard the stories of missionaries and martyrs and church planters, if you're familiar with church history, there's a tendency to read this list as it really is, as a beautiful um, depiction of a life given wholly to God. But I think some of the original impact is lost on us this morning, because what we're going to discover is Paul's resume looks more like a rap sheet, okay? And I don't think that always gets conveyed, because we're so... Um, used to, those who have grown up in the church, so used to this idea of, uh, of the martyr, of the suffering missionary, etc. And so we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. If you're in need of, Bible, of a Bible to follow along, the black books in front of you stuck in the back of the pew are Bibles. There's an index at the front where you can find the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. And again, we'll pick up in chapter 11. This morning, we're going to start with verse 21. Um, We're technically going to start in the second half of 21. Uh, So we'll, we'll go ahead and read it through, but where we're going to focus begins with what he says in the word but, in that contrastive conjunction in the middle of the sentence. And so verse 21, to my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking of it as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold 
and exposure. And apart from all the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Let's pray one last time. Father, I want to just reiterate Christina's prayer this morning that you would give us soft ears and a soft heart to hear your word. We thank you that you've promised your Holy Spirit who not just teaches, uh, teaches us what the Bible says, but speaks to us your word today. And I ask that that would be the case for all who gather here this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Here Paul finally surrenders to the wishes of the Corinthian church. Those who came to criticize Paul said, where is his letter of recommendation? Where is his credentials? They set him aside and said, he's not an impressive speaker. Yes, he can be very powerful and authoritative, but only from a distance. And on top of that, he won't even accept your money. What the, que the question they ask is, if, if Jesus is so glorious, if Jesus is so great, and Paul is so weak and such an embarrassment, how can he truly represent the God he says sent him? And so Paul is finally backed into a corner, and it's worth remembering that even as he lays this list out, this is not something he wants to do. I think it's important to realize that, and it's something that stays true uh, to what we know of Paul the Apostle. Paul writes almost half of the books in the New Testament, okay? On top of that, the book of Acts, the second half, is almost entirely a biography of Paul's missionary journeys. We know quite a lot about Paul's life, more than we do Peter, more than we do John, more than any other New Testament character. We know a lot about Paul's life, but when we read this list, it is full of surprises, we learn things here that are told nowhere else, and we get the feeling, don't we, as Paul tells them here, that he's generally kept them to himself. Here he finally opens and tells what it's really like to be the Apostle Paul, and the list is long, and it's full of hardships, and some of these things seem almost impossible to endure in one life. He says here that he's been shipwrecked three times. And side note, the one shipwreck we read about Paul being involved in in the book of Acts is after this letter was written. Okay. As we look at this list this morning, as he finally goes into boasting, once again, we need to keep in mind, he says that this is foolish. I'm speaking as a fool, and then when he's forced to say, I'm a better servant of Christ, he says, I'm talking like a crazy person. Okay, this is not where he wants to be. This doesn't make for a solid resume of Christian ministry. That's not its purpose. But as we look at it, we can get fully acquainted with the place that boasting should play in the Christian life. If you were with us last Sunday, Matt started by showing all of the ways that shouldn't look. The false boasting of Paul's opponents uh, and the way that they held themselves up as manifestations of the goodness and glory of God. But Paul's list is very different. The first thing I want you to notice is that he starts where 
his enemies are. He says, let's take some of the things that they boast in. He says, they say that they're Hebrews. They say that they're Israelites. They say that they're the sons of Abraham. And he says, I can check all the boxes. Okay. Now, we need to recognize what Paul is doing here. Because we need to recognize that none of those things are really solid credentials. Effectively, the first thing that these other men are boasting in are things that they can't take credit for. They say, we're natural-born Jews. And Paul says, congratulations. They say, but we're part of God's people, the nation of Israel. Not only does that not make sense, because once again, that comes from the decision of their parents to have a child, right? They didn't elect to become the people of Israel, but election in the nation of Israel as a whole is by God's grace. The only thing that separates Israel from any other nation around them, from, from Egypt or Assyria or Rome, is that God graciously laid his finger on Abraham, their great descendant, and says, through you I'm going to do something great. They say here they're the sons of Abraham. Jesus spoke to this issue. That was, that was a badge of pride that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus, uh, uh, held up before him and said, we know our lineage. We know our history. We're of the sons of Abraham. And Jesus just says, God can raise up Abraham's sons from the stones. He sets it aside. We need to recognize how often prestige and status and the things we boast in today are these things. We care about family name and lineage. We care about nationality and status. We care about the wealth that stands behind us. And we hold all these things up as criteria. And sometimes that criteria actually convinces other people that we're the person for the job. But not for the Christian. Not for Paul. He owns up to being all of these things, but he's doing so in somewhat of a mocking term. Listen to his words here in Philippians, talking about the same aspects of who he is. What do we do with our status? How do we present ourselves to other people? Do we want them to know where we come from? Do we name drop? This is what Paul says. He says this in Philippians 3 verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is his resume before he becomes a Christian. These are the things that gave him status and position, confidence. These are the things that he boasted in. I am one of God's people. I am one of his children. I've committed my life to the law. I've become a Pharisee, which requires no small amount of devotion. He says, I was so zealous that I persecuted this new cult of Christianity. As far as my keeping of the law, he says, I was absolutely blameless. Now, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you find that's not the full story. That's a self-assessment. 
But he takes all of this, and this is what he says about it. He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, be, that I may gain Christ. Now, what he says about here is important. He doesn't say that the things on those lists are bad. It's not that he was embracing black and has now recognized white instead. He uses the word surpassing. He says, what I have in Christ is so much more than that, those things are now meaningless. He's experienced a sensation of economic proportion. Paul says, I was like a four-year-old with a nickel. And I loved that nickel. And I thought about that nickel. And I found status in that nickel. And then my uncle left me a million dollars, and I can't remember the last time. I don't even know where I put the nickel. Okay? That's what he's saying when he says the surpassing worth and then he goes further and he says, comparatively, comparatively, I count it as dung in knowing Christ. As refuse, as a waste. The point here is not just that Paul no longer values the identity he had apart from Christ. He does so because he has a more valuable identity in Christ. We need to recognize this morning when we hold up places of position or postures of superiority, when we look to our status to define ourselves before other people as Christians, we have forgotten the value of Christ himself. By the world's standards, these things are significant. They open doors. They move hearts. They come with privileges. And Paul says, I would give up every single one of them if that were the cross or the cost of knowing Christ. And so when he brings up in 2 Corinthians and he says, I am all these things as well, he's not saying, I'm just as good as you. He's saying, So what? Then we get to the fourth one, and this is the one that should make you double take. He says, So am I, so am I, so am I. And then notice what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Sorry, chapter 11. He says in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? That's the fourth one on the list. Hebrews, Israelites, sons of Abraham, so am I, so am I, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? And he says, I'm a better one. Well, that's a bold statement. It's strong. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might already in agree. It's very easy for us to be impressed with the Apostle Paul for a litany of reasons. But hear the weight of it in the text. Imagine what the audience would think at this point. Okay? Here he's constantly decried and set aside boasting as being irrelevant. Earlier he said they compare themselves amongst themselves and in doing so they do so foolishly. And now he steps in and he says, okay, you want to really talk? As a servant of Christ, I am a better servant of Christ. But we need to notice what he does next. Or more importantly, we need to notice what he doesn't do next. Look at all the things that he doesn't say 
This list is long, and in some ways it's impressive. It's impressive that he's still alive. Okay. But what's not on the list? He doesn't say, I'm a better servant of Christ because I've planted this many churches. I'm a better servant of Christ because I have led this many people to Jesus. I'm a better servant of Christ because I've stood before thousands and preached before them. There is not a single place on this list where he talks about uh, ministry accomplishments. Nowhere does he say, here are the things that I have done. And that's important. One of the reasons he does this, he tells us about in 1 Corinthians. You see, in 1 Corinthians, we find out that the church in Corinth, before these other people got there, already had some problems. They were primed and ready for these interlopers to show up. And the way that it shows up back in 1 Corinthians is in division because they've selected their favorite teachers, their favorite pastors, and they've identified themselves by that. One says, well, I'm of Paul. And another says, no, I stand with Apollos. And others say, no, 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 no. If we're going to stand behind anyone, I'm of Peter. And then there's the spiritual bunch who tries not to play and becomes just another team. They're no jersey, they're just the skins, but they say, well, we're of Christ, right? And Paul says, you don't understand. I planted Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the increase. He doesn't come up and say, look, guys, if you do the math, you'll see that I'm much more superior to Apollos, that I've accomplished a lot more than he does. He says, no, there's no boasting in what's been done because that's what God has done. He goes on in the next chapter, in chapter 4, and he says, I am merely a servant of Christ, and what's required of a servant is faithfulness. He says, I don't stand before you as under judgment. I don't care if you think that I'm the best or your favorite or these types of things. He says, frankly, I don't even judge myself. He looks at his own yield in ministry, the things he's accomplished in his life, and he says, I don't know how to count that. I don't have the right metric for that. He says, instead, the Lord will judge me, and we await his judgment. But how does he define it? By faithfulness. Not by accomplishment but by faithfulness, and this is tremendously important because many of God's workers in history and many of God's workers in the Bible have a pretty short stack of results. Consider Jeremiah. Jeremiah, whose call includes this phrase, no one will listen to you, Jeremiah. And in the rest of the book, you just watch as that plays out. Do you know how Jeremiah ends? Not with the repentance of Israel, but being sawn in two by his own people. Faithfulness is a better metric. And we have to watch out for that, don't we? Because there are all times, oftentimes, where for places of business, for new friend groups, for opportunities in ministry where people expect our credentials, where they ask for our resume. And even worse than that, deep down in our heart, we seek our own validation. We say, how can we really know that I'm following Jesus, that I'm doing the right thing? How do we measure? How do I know that I'm okay? Where do I find my sense of value and my sense of worth? 
and there's not one result on the list that Paul holds forth. There's an occasion in Jesus' ministry where he's taken his 12 disciples, he sent them out into pairs, he gives them all authority to preach of the kingdom of God, to cast out demons in his name, and to say, Jesus is following after, you'll meet him soon. And they come back to Jesus and they're just blown away by the things that God has done through them. And they say, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in the mighty works that have been done by your hand, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, watch out for this. Be careful of this. Don't get high on your own supply. Don't be impressed by your own power because it's not your power at all. If you're going to find joy, it'll be found in what God has done for you and not what God has done through you. And so this resume is completely missing results. Instead, it's just a list of what he suffered. Now, there's a clarification we need to make, for, uh, make here. First off, there's some places where this list would hit us differently today as Christians after years of church history than it would then. Okay. For example... The fourth time Paul is shipwrecked, he finds himself washed up in Acts chapter 28 on a little island called Malta. And it's raining. And the residents of Malta see this ship wrecked, see the people escape it onto the beach. And they're helping them because it's raining and they've just been shipwrecked. And so they're building a fire together. And Paul's walking with a bundle of wood, and out of the bundle of wood comes a snake and just latches itself on Paul's arm. And some of the residents of Malta go, wow, that must be a horrible person. Because they just escaped the God's wrath in escaping the sea, and now they're bit by a snake. And Paul shakes it off, and the poison does nothing, and then they're like, oh, this, mess, this man must be a god. Okay. Here's the thing. Some of the things on this list fall in the pattern of natural disaster. And so the question that most people, when they read this list, would ask is, why doesn't God spare him from these things? Like I said, four shipwrecks is probably a personal record. Surviving four shipwrecks, that's pretty impressive, okay? But where was God in this? The God you say you proclaim, who you represent, he can't stop a storm? Not only that, but we need to understand here that when Paul makes this list, he's following a standard design that would have been well known to the people in Corinth. Okay. Romans did not believe in humility. They believed that you needed to earn a hearing. The rhetoricians, the ones that the Corinthian church looked up to, always talked about proving your worth to your audience to earn a hearing. In fact, listen to these words from the biography of Caesar Augustus. First, let's read Paul's words back in verse 24. 
He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now, listen to the words here of Caesar Augustus in his biography. Twice I received triumphal ovations. Three times I received cruel triumphs. Twenty times in one did I receive the appellation of imperator. Sound similar? Instead, what does Paul point to? His rap sheet. Every one of those being... uh, the 40 lashes mining one, being beat with a rod and being stoned, those are all criminal punishments. Okay. That's where he begins. That's where he starts the list. Paul is rejected by the Jews, and so he receives five times 39 lashes. Now, if you're reading back in the book of Deuteronomy, this type of corporal punishment is laid out there. And they're told that the maximum sentence for corporal punishment is 40 lashes. And the rabbis decided that they would always only give 39, and not as an act of mercy, but because in a miscount, they didn't want to disobey the rule. Paul receives maximum sentence five times. Now, in the writings of the rabbis, we know that sometimes people died from one of these punishments, because they make clear that if that happens, it's not the fault of the guy behind the whip. Okay? Five times he endures this. When it says he was beaten with rods, that's a Roman punishment. In fact, we see him endure this during the book of Acts in Philippi, which is a Roman colony. Side note, Paul is a Roman citizen. And as far as we can tell, looking back on history, that means that punishment wasn't, wasn't for him. As a citizen, he was free of this. In fact, in Philippi, when they find out he's a Roman citizen, it almost causes a big to-do because they've just beat him, even though he has his citizenship. But on top of that, it says here um, that he three times was beaten with rods. Then it mentions here that once he was stoned. We can read this about this in the book of Acts as well. Now, stoning was a capital punishment form of the Jews, It was reserved for the most serious offenses in the Old Testament law, including blasphemy. It is a death penalty, okay? Once I was stoned is usually the end of your biography, okay? And what happens in this small city in the book of Acts is they drag him outside of the city, they stone him to death, they walk away, and in the bloody heap he brushes himself off, stands up, and limps back into the same city. I think it's easy for us to admire Paul in these things, but we need to remember that the Corinthian church would not find these things admirable. Okay. Now, one of the places where we need to be careful reading this today is because we have become obsessed with a form of communication called one-upmanship. We need to recognize that's not what's going on here. Paul isn't showing all of his scars and how much he's endured to show how strong he is. He's not demonstrating here uh, that, uh, that he is better because he is stronger. In fact, how does he see these things? He sees them as marks of weakness. Look at what he says in verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
He doesn't look at these and say, this shows how strong I am because I'm still stronger or still standing. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Paul knows personally to be nonsense. His body is broken. Most scholars believe that when he talks about the thorn in the flesh or in Galatians when he talks about how he writes now with large letters, that somewhere in this his vision started to go sideways so he could barely see. He has been weakened over and over again by this list. He is alive, but barely. Let's go through the list again. He says, far greater labors, and then he says, far more imprisonments. And once again, we only know of once that he's imprisoned, and it's not yet. But here we find out that that was, well, sorry, twice, also in Philippi, uh, and then later in the city of Rome. Far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and then he says, and often near death. That's where he lives, often near death. His neighbor is death. It's a constant feature of his life. And so first he lists these penalties and then these natural disasters. He says, halfway through verse 25, three times I was shipwrecked, and one of those times, a night and a day, I was adrift at sea. Verse 26, he says, on frequent journeys. This is a really hard thing to measure, but some commentators suggest that in the ancient world, nobody laid down as many miles in his lifetime as Paul. Okay, for us, constant journeys look like an airplane, right? It looks like modern travel. But for Paul, to cover the ground that he did, the book of Acts records three different mission trips he took around the edge of the Mediterranean all the way from the eastern coast that we know as Israel to the other side where Rome is. Three trips he took, and then on the fourth trip, as he appeals, he's arrested and he appeals to Caesar and takes this trip to Rome, he covers most of the Roman Empire. And what was it like? He says, as I was on these frequent journeys, I was in danger from rivers. Okay, bridges were rare in the ancient world. And so most of the time when you cross a river, you ford it. He says, on danger from robbers. Remember when Jesus tells the parable about the good Samaritan? who takes the road from Jericho and gets jumped by a bunch of criminals who beat him up and take his money, that was a normal part of the ancient world. Now, we still have places like that, but we can avoid them. Paul, in his travels, was constantly taking the only road forward, which was a dangerous road. He says, in danger from my own people. In other words, when I was at home, at da- I was in danger. Then he says, danger from Gentiles. He says, when I was away, I was in danger. Danger in the city and danger in the wilderness. When I was with people, I was in danger. When I was away from people, I was in danger. He goes on, he says, danger at sea, which we know something about already. And then on top of that, danger from false brothers. Okay, hear that with what it means. It means there were people who were close to him, who ended up betraying him, who put him in deeper danger. One of these men we know uh, is named Damis, who when things got hot forsake Paul and left him all alone. Another one is named Alexander the coppersmith, who Paul just says did me great harm. But they were supposed to be Paul's friends. They were his co-workers and his co-laborers. 
And the more he traveled, the more likely he was to be exposed to danger from them. He says that it was in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. Now we're starting to get the heart of the question we need to ask, which is why? Why did Paul get up in the morning? Why did he leave himself, leave his house at all? Why didn't he stay in Tarsus or in Jerusalem or these places that he lived? Why did he travel this way? And notice it wasn't from compulsion. He wasn't dragged to these places. He wasn't dropped in them. He constantly, like that time in Lystra, got up and dusted himself off and began again. Why? His life, from this perspective, looks like a living death. And we have to understand that Paul chose it willingly. Now, when we talk about suffering like this, we often have reductionistic philosophical ideas that go against the grain here. Like the Corinthians, we look at this and we go, that's not right. Sometimes we're like the comforters of Job who say, Job, everything's gone to hell in your life because God is mad at you. And so we look at a life like this and we go, man, just repent already. Just stop whatever you're doing. We look at a life like this and we go, look, I know he sees himself as a minister, but he must be harboring some secret sin. Maybe you don't think that way about other people, but do you think it about yourself? You see, there's been this modern movement, uniquely American, that has taken the American dream and grafted it into Christianity and says, what God wants for you is your happiness and your health and your safety. And if you're not receiving those things, it's because you're doing something wrong. You don't have enough faith. You don't believe enough. This is what God wants for you. And Paul says, look at my scars. In next chapter, in chapter 12, he's going to tell us that God had allowed him a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what it is, but when he tries to describe what it's like, he says it's like going eight rounds in the ring with the devil. He says a buffeting from Satan, that's what he calls it. And so he does what most of us would do in those times. He prays. He says, God, take this from me. And he prays three times, and God says no. Can we handle that as Christians? Is our Christianity big enough for that category? But there's another way we can misunderstand this this morning. Many religions postulate great suffering to impress God, to get to God. The scars that you bear are the evidence that you're worthy of salvation. The pilgrimages you take are a humiliation you take all of the sins you've ever committed and you bear on your body the punishment as much as you can bear to say, here I am, God, now save me. And we have to understand this morning, that's not where Paul is at. It's just the opposite, in fact. Paul isn't doing these things or allowing these things so as to appease an angry God. He's not going through all these things because it takes great effort 
to find God and he will bear whatever cost it takes. He already has him. He knows him. As we learned this morning about our Redeemer, salvation doesn't cost our suffering up front, but we've got to be clear it doesn't spare us from suffering after. Isn't that what Jesus said constantly? Didn't he warn people to count the cost of what it looked like to follow him? As Paul lays out this list, once we move away from those misclarifications, those misunderstanding, one that says this is evidence of God's disfavor, I promise you it is not. And the other that says this is what it takes to really impress God, I promise you that it's not. What do we do with the data? How do we explain that the God who cared so much about Paul, he took on his own flesh the suffering that Paul deserved? And then his life follows suit in the same way. Okay, a couple of things. First off, one of the reasons why Paul wants this to be his resume is because it does look like Jesus. Another church where he was struggling with interlopers, people who came in and preached a new gospel and tried to turn people away from the gospel, Paul presented as in Galatia. And in one of the last sentences of the book, he says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. So let everybody leave me alone. He says, you want to know if I'm Jesus' disciple? My body looks like his. When he says, I bear in my body the marks, the Latin Vulgate translates that stigmata. Those of you who have ever seen exorcism films know what we're talking about. He says, Jesus was pierced in his hands and feet and his side. He says, my body looks just like that. The shape of Paul's life was cruciform. And doesn't that sound like what Jesus said? Don't be surprised if the world hates you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And so Paul knows he's on the same path because he's following in the footsteps of Jesus, but there's more than that. Why does Paul get up in the morning? It's because what he values most can't be taken by any of these things. You see, sometimes... The way we think about life is that God makes available to us what we truly need. And so we think if we get our life right with God, he'll give us security, he'll give us comfort, he'll protect us from danger. Now, there are aspects of that. We heard it in the Psalms this morning. There are places, and let me point out to you here, that Paul is still standing. He's faced all these things, but God has consistently brought him through them. God's power is evident in Paul's life despite hardship. He brings him through over and over again. But when we truly understand what God has done in the gospel, it changes the paradigm. This is how it did for Paul in Romans chapter 8. This is what Christian security looks like. He says in Romans 8, verse 38, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sword, famine, nothing can take what Paul has. Do you see God in that way? Do you understand the value of the gospel in that way? That you can bear any exposure, any opposition, any natural disaster, and say, I've lost nothing. Now, I want to be clear here. The Bible never downplays suffering or the reality of it. Unlike the Eastern beliefs, suffering is not an illusion. It's very real. And the Bible is unique in presenting a God who not only seeks to, to solve our suffering, but actually entered into it and suffered himself. And so the hand that's calling the shots and all of these things is not an arbitrary God who doesn't know the feeling of suffer, suffering. It's one who suffered himself. However, Paul looks at everything in his life and he says it's worth it. In fact, let's push it forward. If Paul already has Jesus... If he already has all of this worth, why is he traveling? Why is he on the road at all? It's because Jesus is so worthwhile to him, he wants a whole world to know, and he will bear any cost so that they might hear. But don't mistake this. This is not like... This is not like a video game where the reward's at the end and you have to bear all the difficulties and fight through all the, you know, hard hardships to get there. He already has it. He wants other people to have it. And he goes through all of this willingly and freely because it's just that good. As Christians, we boast in our suffering not because we're so strong, but because no cost we pay in life could ever measure the reward we have in Christ. That's why earlier in this book, Paul says, this is what he calls this list, the momentary afflictions of this time. He says they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. They won't even lift the scale off the ground. It's like a feather and a two-ton weight. He says there's no math that makes this balance out. He looks at all of these things and he says, this is nothing in comparison to what we have in Christ. Peter says something similar. It's easy to see Paul's life as being unique, but let me remind you that 11 of the 12 apostles were put to death for believing in Christianity. That The 12th one, they attempted it, he survived it, so they banished him to the Isle of Patmos, and he's the only one who died in old age. Let me remind you that the church is filled with the death of Christians at the hands of opposition to the degree that the great uh, church historian whose name I forget said that the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. Let me remind you that the last hundred years more people have died for being Christians than the rest of church history combined. I know where we're at this thing can seem distant. This thing can seem irrelevant. We have freedom of religion. We may face opposition, but we don't generally face death. But Paul's life is not unique. 
And so we find it in Peter as well. In fact, 1 Peter is all about Christians and suffering. That's the whole theme of the book. He talks about it from every angle. But listen to his words here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Just for an example, look at what he says in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The book is full of passages like this. The one I want to draw your attention to, though, Hold on, let me check my pocket. I was just looking at it this morning. Is in chapter 3. Look at verse 13. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here he says that we should always be prepared to make a defense, and the word there in the Greek is where we get our word apologetics, to explain the validity of Christianity. But we don't always notice the context there, do we? What is it that makes those around us ask, what do you believe again? It's the way we handle suffering. The way we navigate through it. The way that it says here, give a defense for what? For the hope that lies within us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're hard pressed but not crushed. One of the reasons why Paul never talks about these things, it's not because they don't hurt It's not because they aren't important. It's because he measures them in the larger scales and his hope is unbroken. Paul doesn't tap out. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he's on trial for the second time before Caesar Nero. And he's pretty sure this time he's not going to be released. And he says, the last time I stood, no one stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. And he set me free from the lion's mouth. And he says, I am convinced he will set me free again. But if you read the rest of the letter, he knows that freedom comes in death. That's why he says, I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I'm ready. He knows in a few days' time, he will be beheaded by the emperor. But even that can't take what he has. Here's the thing. Paul's life only makes sense if Jesus is alive. 
if the salvation that God offers in Jesus Christ is really that true, is really that valuable, is, is really that secure, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul looks at his life laying before him, and he says, I have nothing to lose. And he endures, and he faces pain and suffering, and he goes through dangers, and he gets up in the morning, and he does it all over again. Why? Because the love of God is really that good. One of the things that is so constant in human life is pain and suffering. It's inescapable. It's not that some people suffer and others don't. We all experience pain and suffering. What's unique about Christian suffering is that we aren't ruined by it. that we can find ourselves hungry and without clothing and we do not despair. Habakkuk understood this. Habakkuk was a minor prophet. Minor because of the length of the book, not because of his role. And in the book of Habakkuk, he comes to God and he says, God, why would you put up with all of this wickedness in Israel? Why have you been so long-suffering and patient with them? And he lays out a litmus test, just a roster of the horrible things they've been doing. And God says, I've got a plan, but you won't believe me if I tell you. And Habakkuk says, I want to know. So God says, okay, I'm bringing in the Babylonians. They're going to conquer your people and they're going to drag them out of their land. They're going to displace them and it's going to be cruel and it's going to be awful. And Habakkuk says, why would you do that? I mean, we're bad, but we're not Babylonian bad. Why would you use such a horrible people? And God goes on and he says, oh, I will judge the tool of my judgment as well. I will lay it out. And then he says, and even more than that, through this, I'm going to bring the restoration of Israel. I'm going to bring salvation itself. Through this, I will bring the Messiah. And suddenly, Habakkuk sees God for who he really is. It's not a protection from the path he has to walk himself or from his people. It's not a promise of everything safe and secure. But he sees God for who he really is. And this is how he finishes this book. He says in verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruits be on the vine. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the folds, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread on high places. See what he says here? He says, anything the world can throw at me. Any loss I can experience here, yet I will rejoice in God because he is my strength. Here's the point. Nothing demonstrates the sufficiency of God like when God is all you have.
I had to confess, or I have to confess this morning, that as I was studying this, I found a good deal of fear in myself. Like most of you, I feel like these things are far off, but that doesn't mean I don't find my stomach in knots about what could happen. I want to be clear here. That the difference between me and Paul is not that he has some sort of stronger endurance, that he's made of better stuff. He truly sees who God truly is. And I find in my heart, like many of you might this morning, that there are places where I still value my own comfort and safety more than Jesus. But when Paul presents this resume of suffering, he doesn't do it to demonstrate that he's a victim of circumstances, to evoke the pity of the church. He boasts in these things. He doesn't weep in them. He doesn't mourn in them. He doesn't beg in them. He boasts in them because these demonstrate the total reality of the sufficiency of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I think each of us needs to search our heart this morning and say, when we boast, what do we boast in? And it may be some prestige or status, something that we can't even take credit for, or it may be our accomplishments and a long list of the things that we've done and the degrees or the titles next to our name or the position we hold in work or in the world and we have yet not yet truly learned the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. We've not yet fully done the math and counted those things like the Apostle Paul as refuse in comparison to knowing him. And there are places, Lord, where we may be experiencing a fiery trial or we may be veering from right in fr- what's right in front of us and trying to deer, detour around difficulty. And we're doing it because, Lord, we do not know what the Apostle Paul knows. That whatever the world, our own flesh, and the devil himself can throw at us, we are secure. Because what we have is greater than all those things, and what we have cannot be taken from us. I pray, Lord, that you would show us where our own fears point to idolatry, things that we value more than you. And I pray, like Paul, that the scales would fall off our eyes, that even though we hear the words, I will show you the things you suffer for my sake, pray, Lord, that we'd see you for who you really are. The one who died for us. The one who suffered on our behalf. The one who made it so even when we bear in our bodies the death of Jesus, we know that it produces life. Life for us and life for others. 
And I lift up anyone here this morning who's not a Christian, God. And I ask that you would reveal the insurpassable wealth of knowing you. That they would be able to parse the complexities and the difficulties of life, weighed in the scales of the God who is good, who is loving, and who took on human flesh and gave them value and worth and a new identity that cannot be taken. We ask as we worship this morning that this would be the God we worship, not just the God we cry out to to protect us from these things, but the God who's in the very midst of the fiery furnace walking amongst us, the God who will not leave us nor forsake us, the God who in Christ Jesus is enough, come what may. I pray this in your name, amen. Amen, as we respond this morning, let's worship God together with our songs and praises. Come forward and partake of communion and remember that suffering is right at the heart of Christianity. That Jesus' body was broken for you and partake of that death as you eat of the bread. That the new covenant, the promises that are made to us in Jesus Christ are signed and sealed and guaranteed in the blood of Christ and we partake of the cup.